BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me producer Matt Wilkinson. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Indeed, indeed. Now, we're going to do three films that impacted on everything in your adult life uh, very soon. Uh, you've given me a list of three. Yeah. Um, but before that, I just thought I want to point out for the listener that maybe if, if a listener who's been listening to a lot of the podcasts will have heard about your films through through the people that I've covered, the filmmakers I've spoken to already. I went back before, while I was arranging this with Matt, and uh, discovered I've interviewed seven filmmakers, which I think unofficially speaking might be the most any one producer I've covered their films. I mean, I didn't plan to, Matt, but I've I'm, I've happily done it. Very honoured, very honoured. I've been waiting for somebody to catch up with my career and it just might be interesting. <laughs> I've unofficially documented it in its in its own <laughs> unique way. So that was, I mean, the, the films are covered, for, and I'll put links in the show notes, was, was Burial Most Recently, Choose or Die, The Power, Muscle. Muscle that then led me to thank one of, one of my favourite interviews. I got to interview Jared Johnson about the making of Tony as well. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, wonderful film. I mean, I had such a great conversation about Muscle because it's, I mean, it is a stunning film, that I was like, would you do an interview about Tony as well now? And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Because he'd enjoy he'd enjoyed the chats, so that was nice. Uh, Say your prayers, uh, double date, and bricks. Bricks seems such a long time ago. That was um, Nev Nev Pierce's short film. Yeah, yeah. I remember meeting Nev Pierce at uh, his. I think did that what, was that the one that played at Fright Fest? Because that was how I ended up speaking to him. I can't. Remember yeah, if... I think it did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's nice to have you on the show, and you've got a, you've got a film coming up called The Last Sentinel, which is from what you were saying before we started recording, is 10 years in the making. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that film is? It might even be 12 years in the making. It is a sci-fi thriller, futuristic sci-fi thriller. Yeah. And it's set on a military outpost in the middle of the ocean after an environmental disaster. And only two continents remain. 
and it's a kind of them and us scenario. And the military outpost is defending one continent in face of an impending threat from the other continent, and it's manned by four soldiers. And the enemy doesn't come. And the longer they wait for the enemy, the more it erodes their identity because you're kind of not soldiers unless you're, um, or certainly for them, you're not soldiers unless you're involved in something. And as they kind of go quietly mad waiting for this impact, they all start to tear each other apart. So it's kind of a psychological pop boiler thriller. Were you involved right from conception through to the finished thing? Or did you come on at a later stage? Well, I, I was kind of, I was second on of five producers, ultimately, I think. Uh, lead producer was a guy called Ben Pullen. Uh, he got inspired by the idea. He found a writer. The writer wrote a script. They found um, what then was a first-time feature director. He was a graduate of the NFTS. And Ben hadn't produced a film yet. And um, he just set about figuring out ways to, to put it together. And at the time, I had a deal with Pathé UK, and I was trying to bring in sort of lower budget genre material. Yeah. And uh, I think Ben just took a punt on me to see if I could get it away at, at Pathé. And although Pathé didn't go for it in the end, uh, for various reasons, I sort of felt akin to the project. I just thought it was a very intelligent, character-led story that was also a really exciting genre film or had the potential to be an exciting genre yeah. film. And I kind of went along for the journey from there. But um, yeah, it just turned out to be an incredibly long journey. From from a, from a writing development point of view, that kind of fantastic sort of high concept and dystopian future. What what do you remember being like some of the storytelling challenges for for the for the writer in terms of building that on paper? Because on paper, that's quite hard. <laughs> what you've just it, described, it, it is quite hard. But Ben chose really wisely with the writer he he went to, and it was quite an experienced writer anyway. So it wasn't the first time gig for the writer, but. Um, he just feels very comfortable in those spaces of um, dialogue exchange and the, and the gaps between what's spoken and what's not spoken and just building scenes around tension. And it was just exactly what that story needed. So I think, I think for the writer, it was a bit of a joy to write. And certainly it was the script first and foremost that, that brought me into it. Um, it was just a film that had lots of iterations. We've had lots of financial partners over the years. Yeah. We had lots of different casting iterations over the years. We were going to do it in the UK. Uh, ultimately, we ended up doing it in Estonia, but we did it in Estonia with German financiers. And it, it's just one of those things, certain projects that are a bit challenging. Yeah. If you don't end up um, you know, with studio backing or now streamer backing, and if you don't end up, with a certain level of cast, then it just becomes quite a difficult exercise to jigsaw together enough money to really do justice to something that's ambitious. Brilliant. Well, look, without further ado, let us jump into three films that impacted everything in your adult <laughs> life. Um, now, you've given me three. Now, before we get into it, can I ask you, yeah. how much head-scratching did you do to get it down to these three? How long was your long list before you got the short list? <laughs> So you you gave me a steer when we spoke but yeah. the last time we met that's obviously clouded my judgment entirely. You basically said to me something along the lines of most people go for formative films from their teenage years. Yeah. And I remember being about 16 or 17 and being obsessed about the idea of having a top 10 favorite film list. And I carried it everywhere with me in my head. And I just knew exactly what my top 10 Blimey. favorite films are. Um, and I kind of never updated it after I was 18. I, I sort of didn't go back there. 
So when you said most people go for the formative years, I just thought back to what the top 10 list was. And then I kind of thought, well, some of these are a little bit cliche, so I don't necessarily want to want to reach for the cliche ones. So um, the three I chose are hopefully slightly left of centre. Although I know they're very populist films among among filmmakers. The pop, I mean, um, every I mean, everyone I've done so far has been populist. I don't think before yeah. we're kind of sixteen, where when we about sixteen, we start we start to believe we're cooler than now, but but yeah, we're not yeah. we, we're not fully aware. We're not fully formed in that kind of thinking there are just these films are just are just magic and they hold your attention you know yeah and i and i could have chosen three different films from that list and there's certainly you know one of my favorite films of all time is probably david fincher's seven and that was definitely on on that list but yeah i just i for whatever reason because they hold a special place in my heart because maybe they're a little bit weirder because maybe they're a little bit less conventional hmm. uh, i plumped for these three Okay, well, look, what I'm going to do is, and I'll say, I'm saying this to you and the audience at the same time, which is I'll take them in reverse date order in terms of their release date. So I'll, I'll, okay, I'll prompt right. you, and then we'll set the clock going for five minutes. So what I'm just going to do now is, for the listeners' benefit now, the rules are quite simple. I've got three films. We're going to talk about them for five minutes at a time. And when the alarm goes off, which is going to sound like this, Terrifying. You can hear you, you can hear that at your end. I can. So when that fa- that may, that'll signify the fact. Obviously, finish your thought. I'm not. This isn't like you know. This isn't mastermind. It's not. It's not. Uh, you know. The things everyone has to stop. Although some people do. Some people just stop. It's it's completely up to you. Um, but it's just more of a fact that for the show's benefit, it means that we can force ourselves to give each film equal attention as opposed to yeah. 14 minutes on one of them. And then sixty seconds on the other three. I'm, I'm definitely going to struggle to do fourteen minutes on any of them. But yeah. <laughs> well, look. Let's start at the top then. 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Clock is ticking. What do you remember first about like when you when did you first see this and how did you first see it? Where did it where did this come across your your radar? It's it, it's going to be a slightly fudged answer because I honestly don't remember when I genuinely first saw it or when it was first drawn to my attention. But I remember that when I was a younger teen, so Mm. let's say like about 13 probably, my parents had brought me this thing for Christmas, which was brilliant, and I absolutely loved it. And it's, it's hard to describe, but it was about the size of a ghetto blaster, and it had a tiny, like, five inch black and white telly. It had a cassette player, and it had a radio, and it was this unit. Fancy. And they, they, they bought it for me as a Christmas present. And I don't know if they bought it for me because they thought I was going to play my tapes on it or, or or whatever. But the most important part of it was that it had a TV on it. And what it meant was that when I went to bed at night, no one was really the guardian of what I watched. Hmm. So I'd turn on my little black and white TV and I'd scroll through the channels. And then there was probably only like four channels. And um, I'd find movies and I'd get obsessed with movies. And I think maybe I discovered it on one of those journeys and mm. I probably didn't even watch it from the start. And I just didn't understand what it was. It was just so alien to me in like every possible direction. I'd never heard of the stage show. I'd never heard of the the kind of cult of this film, certainly in terms of how it exists in popular culture now. I was just watching this weird, dark, macabre, but playful, obviously musical obviously all kinds of things about gender identity that I probably 
didn't understand and sexuality that I didn't necessarily understand all wrapped it up in this weird, wonderful and warped tale. And I think I was just like sort of jaw hanging slightly open mm. as I watched it. And even things like the start of the film, like I can't think of a more arresting image than those bright red lips singing this incredible open song. And it runs for the entire duration of the opening credits that you're being sung to by this sort of invisible, invisibly faced pair of lips. And just from that moment on, I was, I was totally drawn into it. But also in terms of kind of structure and storytelling, like the breaking of the fourth wall with um, Charles Gray as your narrator and how certain scenes go to stills and he's kind of annotating them and he's sort of alluding to a backstory that he's not really quite to tell you about yet. And then then just the kind of fish out of water narrative of the simplicity of their car breaking down, then they find themselves at the house and it's kind of the worst place you can, you can ever ask for help. And I, I think in terms of, maybe subconsciously in terms of my own storytelling, um, the idea of seeking help in the worst possible place has definitely remained with stories that interest me. Okay. The idea that if you turn to the wrong person at the wrong time, it's something that can totally unravel your life. And however tangential that seems, that probably led to me getting involved in projects like Muscle. You know, don't don't turn to the wrong person mm. in a moment of crisis because you never know what the undoing is going to be after that situation. Um but I also just found it totally joyful as well. And um, it was probably the first time I ever saw Meatloaf in an acting role. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. When you said you can't remember where you saw it and that kind of the idea of not being yeah. aware of its cultural significance. I mean, I used to go to the under-16s disco in Bolton at the Ritzy and they played the time warp there. I had no idea of where that song was from, apart from hearing yeah. it at the under-16s disco. So yeah. it was a long time till I saw the film after that that I even knew it was from a film. And I'm, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound desperately weird. So I found another friend at secondary school, years and years later, probably when I was about 16, who was also equally obsessed with it for reasons unknown. And we could just quote the film. And it, even now, lines from the film pop into my head in certain situations. And I've just got huge parts of the dialogue of that film in my head. And I just think there's something about it. I just think... Richard O'Brien has created a unique weirdness that totally transcends time and e even now is like completely beguiling and en engrossing and all the rest of it. So yeah, it just, it started out as sheer weirdness and then became a bit of a love affair with this thing that almost defies categorization. Have you, know, you done, have you done the, uh, the sing-along then? Have you been, to, I mean, I, you know know I've never done the sing-along. I've never seen the stage play. Um, I did buy the soundtrack probably in like three different formats, but I couldn't tell you the last time I, I listened to it. I had a writer on called Richard Cabot who did who did punk film, you know, films influenced by punk. Oh, there's the first bell. And he he cited the Rocky Horror Picture Show as being a punk film. What, because what I didn't realise is the stage play was like took place on the King's Road, all that kind of cross dressing, oh, you yeah, know, for sure. yeah. you know, cross you know, gender not being clear. Suspenders yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that kind of S and M alluding to S and M and stuff, and then you get Vivian Westwood and and her yeah, shop, and no, it's like you can't imagine there wasn't an influence from the stage show and therefore the film. Well, maybe that's maybe maybe that's another subconscious part of it. Is like the provenance of things that you go on to love, you sort of then start to appreciate the the, the backwards referencing. But yeah, just even now, I haven't quite encountered a film like it. Um, so in terms of like formative storytelling, it definitely stuck with me. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's, it's that 
classic thing about, and, and obviously you, you appreciate this from the, the films you've made, it's like there is no secret sauce to making a successful film. And as Richard O'Brien has proven, like, you know, the, you know, the person be, the person who gave us this, then the things he's tried to do afterwards, ne- you know, were interesting, but they never hit the zeitgeist like yeah. that. I think, I think the only secret sauce in it. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. probably sounds lame to say is having uh, a determination for yourself and fulfilling that determination and sort of trying not to worry about anything else but again film is so mercurial uh, half the time it's compromise and the other half the time it's stuff that you didn't even anticipate that's kind of ruining your your endeavors but yeah i think he set out to do something very close to what he achieved and i think that's why it's a success right then moving swiftly along to uh, 1981 with American Wealth in London, uh, do do uh, do you made do you recall where you saw this first? Is this another is this another TV black and white TV on your own? I genuinely think it is. I think I went through maybe a year of catching things that I shouldn't and wouldn't have been aware of, and shouldn't have probably been watching. And more surely than the Rocky Horror Picture version of it, I think it absolutely was one of those things that I watched under the bed covers probably at a similar age, um, probably without my parents' knowledge. And um, again, it was just such a visceral experience. Like probably probably my first memory of um, American Wealth in London was the scene where Jack gets taken on the moors. And I just remember the execution of that scene being so terrifying. It's, it's the first time I remember watching film and feeling scared, I think is the honest truth. Like scared for reasons of like, uh, understanding the reasons I was scared, scared for reasons of like having witnessed something violent and having it totally seared into your cortex. And I think when I came to watch it for a second time, I was maybe quite worried about watching that scene again because it was kind of so effective in how it made you imagine what was going on in that in that moment. But then beyond that, just all kinds of other emotions. Like it is such an emotive movie. Like you wouldn't get away now with making a film that was so tonally agnostic, that wasn't particularly <laughs> trying to exist in a certain genre. And no. you know, most people will tell you it's a it's a horror, or maybe some people will tell you it's a comedy horror because it's John Landis and you know, you have all the um you have all the stuff with Frank Oz and the kind of knockabout detectives and all the rest of it. But it's kind of also a love story. And it's also pretty sexy in places. And it's also a story about male friendship. And there's all these things going on and you'd never get away, probably for marketing reasons and audience targeting reasons, you'd never get away now with the idea of having a film that was so unsure of its tone, yet so successful in telling a story that that kept you engaged. And then probably the, the cherry on the cake of that would be the fact that sort of pre, possibly pre-ILM, but pre my knowledge of ILM and, and moving to VFX and all the rest of it, everything was really about um, the height of on-screen SFX and the stuff that Rick Baker was doing in that movie and the, the werewolf transformation that is in camera. Yeah. You're watching this in-camera sequence and it's totally mind-bending. Probably also gave me an appreciation of 
what you can do in in film, like grounded stuff that's completely otherworldly and and just the excitement of all that. And um, yeah, just a, f- a film that I've gone back to repeatedly and I probably couldn't cite every line in the way that I could cite every line from um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. But j- just f- something that could be so funny, so scary, so sexy, all rolled into one. Um, you know, just kind of feels like a, a, a gift of a of a film experience. And again, a bit like Rocky Horror, I can't really find its equivalent film. You know, you look at other comedy horrors if you want to cite it like that. You know, Shaun of the Dead is not like American Wealth in London. I think most comedy horrors decide they're either going to be a horror, but a slightly sloppy one, or they decide they're going to be a comedy with a bit of a gross with a bit of gross out. And you know, we made Double Date, so mm. we, we make that decision. We were making a comedy with a bit of gross out. But America Wealth in London has genuine horror, terrifying horror, and mm. has genuine comedy. And the two somehow can seem to exist in the same world. Yeah, I mean, me as a child seeing this and then as an adult going on the tube for the first time, I mean, and then sort of once, yeah. I, once, I, was living in London, once I was living in London and those late night tubes home, no matter, it's yeah. weird how your, your, your id just oh. goes, this is the, it, it's not even the same station. It's just your immediate thought is, this is like well, America for London. <laughs> what does, what does good horror do? Like you're afraid to go back in the water. That was the power of Jaws. You're totally right. Like crossing a park at night or being in the underground when there was no one else in the station is a completely transformative experience. Once you've seen American wealth, you just yeah. can't get away from it. So that's the power of effective horror. But he was just also being so much more playful than that. And I had no appreciation of John Landis. It's not mm. like I'd climbed up through his films or I'd seen Animal House or whatever it was. I was just taking it completely at face value and I just thought it was it was so effective. Added to that, I probably did slightly fall in love with Jenny Agatha. Don't know how old Jenny Agatha was in that movie, but um the scene uh, the scene that also got me into Van Morrison where Moondance plays over the top gave me gave me a, a, an early cinematic crush. And then Griffin Dunn as well. I just thought Griffin Dunn is an incredible actor and the stuff with him in the cinema with David where he's kind of the decomposing corpse. It's just like brilliant, brilliant Wait, moment. You're right. I mean, it's, it's it, until you said it, I hadn't really thought about it. I never heard that expression before, um, genre agnostic. I think it's a really, it's a really useful expression because it's, it is, it's probably the true, the most successful one at it um, in terms of it. And I, well, and it is right. You, you, you. The reason you enjoy the film is, like you say, the buddy, the buddy movie you watch, the love story you watch, the fantastic monster creature feature you watch, and then the gags, <laughs> and like, and the gags, and the gags are, are genuinely funny. But also, you just reminded me of some more scares, like the sequence where he wakes up from a nightmare three times, and the nightmare is progressively more horrible. Again, totally messed me up. Like. The Nazi, the, the, the Nazi zombies, you the mean? People masks, the people in masks who come and, and shoot up the house, yeah. and then him waking up with the face of a monster, and then him in the in the forest biting the neck of that deer. This is all like really iconically scary shit. In, in and uh, so, um, so you said you might, have, you probably saw it first on television. Um, yeah, the original cuts on television didn't include the Nazi zombies in the dream sequence. That oh, was, right. Okay, that was okay. cut well, maybe, from a, I, maybe I saw that on subsequent... Yeah, news. I mean, I don't, um, I, I, mean it, it, I don't know when it became... I mean, it's on. you see it now if it's on television, but there was a period when there was cuts, versions of it where... Because that is a genuine... There's no, there's no other way to read that scene. It's just terrifying. 
yeah, yeah, it's 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 deeply terrifying. And so I probably carried a love around of this film with a kind of equal disturbedness of this film, but it certainly didn't turn me away from horror. And it might have been my gateway drug into seeking more dark and depraved things along the way. But also, obviously, John Landis, um, you know, has done some brilliant comedy. So indeed, hand in hand. Which is a lovely segue. So we're now going to do a brilliant comedy. <laughs> 1985's The Breakfast Club. John Hughes. What 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 can you say? Like, there's probably not really a John Hughes film that I don't love. And there might be other contenders for the, the throne. I mean, obviously, Ferris Bueller holds a very warm place in my heart. But um, there's, I probably saw The Breakfast Club later than, than Rocky Horror and American Werewolf. But maybe not that much later. Maybe I was about 15 or something. And I guess the deal with that film was um, I probably felt like spoken to. And I know it was written by like a 50-year-old man or whatever. But I think it's quite... I think you always engage with the film that you feel like you can relate to or is saying something about a universe that you understand. But it's not always that a film is speaking directly to you. And I know it's an American high school and all the rest of it. Mm. But I think I just felt like the teenage voices in that film, however slightly tweaked or, or contrived and however deliberately tropey in terms of, of the tribes and all the rest of it, was was just sort of speaking to me. And I think I just wanted to lean in. I almost wanted detention. I wanted to be a part of that crowd. And you know you're supposed to identify with Emilio Estevez, but secretly you want to be Judd Nelson, depending on your your gender mm. or your or your proclivities or all the rest of it. Um, and there's always the girl that you're supposed to um, relate to. And, you know, you're probably supposed to fancy Molly Ringwald, but actually I was into Ali Sheedy because of the slightly gothic uh, yeah, yeah, leaning yeah. On, on my own part. But um, just just the dialogue and the characters and, and the situation, it felt, it felt real, it felt relatable, it, it felt pretty vital at the time. And um, also the cleverness of this, really simple device which is like you know they're gonna get on you know they're gonna find a way out of it you know that the loners are gonna find friendship and all the rest of it but really what you're asking yourself is what did they do to get detention and the way they decide that he decides to to deliver this isn't through like flashbacks or taking you out of the space or taking you out of the sequence it's spending time with them and imagining the thing that they did and things like Emilio Estevez's story where he talks about how they were terrible to that kid in the locker room he's just telling you a story mm. but you feel like you've seen that it's a hundred percent absolutely in your head and kind of listening to all the different permutations of, of what brought them there on that Saturday morning I just thought it was like really immediate and clever and clever storytelling and uh, a weird thing popped into my head um, a couple of days ago when I was thinking about it which is the there's sort of a reservoir dogsy thing here, which is you so things have happened that you were never part of. And I know in Reservoir Dogs, he kind of gives you glimpses of it, but yeah. things have happened that you were never a part of. And you're just really enjoying the aftermath of that and the fallout of that and seeing how these people are gonna are gonna get through the situation. And I think it's a it's a lot harder to do that and to make that play and to make that not seem like theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is it's it is in a way, it's a classic chamber piece, isn't it? I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, it's only a classic chamber piece, but actually, chamber pieces often feel like theatre, and they often um, you often tire of it, or it often sags in, in certain parts of it. And I just felt like I was in that classroom, 
and I really wanted to enter the life of those kids. And it, it, you know, the fact that he was an older guy, but had obviously had an ear for teen dialogue or teen angst or whatever it was, just really had an impression on me at, at, the, at the right time in my life. I think. So. I think one of the things they got got dead right was that idea of when when they started to sort of feel around, and I don't mean that physically, just like to get when they started to get to know each other, because. Usually in a chamber piece like this, it's like it's five strangers, but these are five strangers yeah. because they're from five tribes as far they're from as different cliques, yeah. yeah as far 100%. as school goes. So they don't know each other. So it's they're trying to get each other's truth out of each other. So when they begin to have fun, which is what young people like to do, because that's an immediate thing, the minute the fun stops, they're back to being tribes. So they're like they they let the yeah. guard down. And I thought that was really sweet. That that's a really sweet part of the movie. And, and they don't have the protection of the rest of their tribe, so there's a lot of vulnerability there. But I also like the fact that, like, the smartest person in that building is the janitor, and he's also someone who's been, like, totally overlooked. And and also the relationship with um, the Paul Gleason character, like, just how aggressive and insidious the, the authority figure was in that story, like, um, to an extreme. But yeah, I did, I did develop probably a bit of a Judd Nelson obsession after that, and was desperately seeking out like New Jack City or, <laughs> or, or or whatever it was. Probably lots of obscure titles that have kind of drifted into the mist. But he was Judd Nelson was probably the James Dean of my teenage years. Put it that way. I think but, he um, wishes he was. Maybe didn't quite survive it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess the one last thing to say about about the Breakfast Club is that it's a film where a piece of music gets owned by the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, Simple Minds... That iconic image of him with his fist in the air in yeah. the freeze frame at the end. But I, I learned many years later that that was one of the few songs that Simple Minds didn't actually write. Oh, wow. It was written for them and they performed it. And I don't know if that's a bit of an annoyance for Jim Kerr that um, actually the song that everybody loves is one of the few that he didn't actually write. But anyway. Blimey O'Reilly. Well, look, that was the bell for uh, the last five minutes. That's your... Three films that impacted everything in your adult life. It's nice to hear about a bit of technology, which is now redundant. The the TV with tape, <laughs> with tape and radio. I mean, I don't know where it is. It might be in my parents' garage now, and it probably yeah. isn't working. Also, the TV screen was genuinely tiny, tiny. So I must have been like nose to the to the glass trying to watch it. I must admit, it's a it's a piece that it's a piece that just passed me by. I didn't. I never. I don't think I ever saw one. <laughs> I'll see if I can find it and photograph it for you. Nice. But um, no, it was my gateway to sort of naughty midnight film watching, and it probably exposed me to a lot of stuff too early, but it's also led to me having a film in a career in film. So maybe it wasn't the worst thing. Brilliant. Good luck with the release of The Last Sentinel. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Um, I hope you enjoyed, and I look forward to listening to it.
another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Oh,